Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back with you uh, to study the scriptures once more uh, again this week. And if you're in person, once again, thanks for being with us. New, we'd love to get to meet you. Maybe you can stay afterwards if you're here in person outside. If you're new to Facebook Live or YouTube, or maybe you just feel sort of new, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at sid at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com, um, or maybe just reach out. Um, and also just want to make uh, underline a Mark's announcement and say, we'd love for you to be in person if you can be. Um, and also, uh, we would underline that thank you to the volunteers, especially the second service, you're probably feeling it. So thank you uh, for all you're doing. It means a lot to us. So uh, as I said this past uh, spring, and this, for this spring and summer, uh, we're continuing a series that we left off last fall on the life of David. Uh, we finished the book of uh, 1 Samuel uh, in the fall, and we're looking at the book of 2 Samuel together in the spring and summer. And uh, our title for the series is The God After Our Own Hearts. The God After Our Own Hearts. And this is because while David's life is instructive, it does have a detailed description of what Christian living could look like. David's life is primarily about God and God's all out all pursuing love for his own people. Last week, we looked at 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, and David's transition from a wanted man living in the wilderness to a king with an ever-expanding kingdom in the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, which we're not going to look at uh, this morning, you can read along with us. I encourage you to read along with us on your own. 
Uh, suddenly, in those two chapters, four and five, the rival king, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, uh, he gets assassinated. David has no part to play in that, uh, but David does uh, end up taking not just uh, Judah, but the rest of the tribes as king. And he conquers the city of Jerusalem and he pushes out the Philistines out of uh, Israelite territory. In other words, David is in this place. He's in a place of prosperity, he's in a place of peace, and he's a place of power. And so the question becomes, what does God do in this place? What does David, God do through David in this place? What does David do next? How does he begin his kingship and peace and prosperity and power? Our passage this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us exactly what David did first. But before we step into phase one of David's kingdom project, uh, his plan for his own peace and prosperity, would you join me in prayer um, for our time this morning in God's words? Father, these are your words. Um, and we pray that you would help us to take them seriously. Uh, Lord, would you help us not to dismiss them, uh, help, us, help us to wrestle with them, help us to um, hold them in our hearts and think about the ways in which we read them. And Lord, would you be with that reading? Would you um, enlighten it? Would you help us to, to see you more like the way that you see yourself and the way that you talk about yourself in your scripture. And Lord, would you just be with us? Some of us are in a place of fatigue. Some of us feel refreshed and renewed, um, Lord. And um, some of us spiritually feel like stale. And some of us are running to you today. Wherever we are, would you meet us? Um, would you take us up in your arms once again? Would you remind us of your love and care for us and who you are? We ask this in your name, Jesus, through your words. Amen. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about mentorship, uh, people in my life that have been mentors. And uh, one of the best Christian mentors I ever had was when I was an intern with Reform University Fellowship, a college ministry, and I was in Central Florida. And there was a, a man named Andy Johnson. Andy Johnson uh, is this amazingly kind, patient, and insightful minister, and he's a really good friend to this day. Uh, but you'd also, if you met him for even three minutes, uh, would realize that he's the master of awkward humor. <laughs> He loves the uncomfortable joke. In fact, he's the kind of person that loves telling a joke, especially from up front, especially in a crowd of people that only is for one person to laugh. He lives for the one laugh out of, and, the, and the rest of the people not getting it. And so it should not surprise you that Andy has this funny and uncomfortable story about the birth of one of his children. Let me assure you before I begin, it's actually a true story. Uh, and really it's an amazing true story his, Andy and his wife, Kelly, have decided they have two boys and they want to adopt, and they, and they go through the Florida Adoption Agency, and they wait for a child to become available, and they're hoping for a girl, but they don't want to treat adoption like online shopping, and so they gladly settle for a boy when they hear and meet uh, a birth mother willing to let them adopt her child. Anyway, the day, day comes when the little adopted child is going to be born, and Andy and Kelly nervously wait while the doctor and the nurse deliver the baby. And the delivering doctor is the same doctor that this woman, the birth mother, has had all nine months through all the, all the different check-ins and check-ups, all the ultrasounds. And so it's a great moment. They feel pretty, pretty uh, assured. But there's still some nervousness, some excitement, and obviously some pain in that birthing room. And the birth mother pushes and pushes and out comes this beautiful baby. And the nurse holds up the baby to the mother 
And then to the mother's OBGYN doctor, and the tired mother just gushes, cries, like you can imagine the scene, some of you were there. <laughs> uh, you've had these moments. But then the doctor does this interesting thing. The doctor does a double take. And alarmed, the doctor shouts out, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? And the nurse turns to the doctor and calmly says, doctor, it's a girl. It's a girl. So you see, the doctor was absolutely convinced of the baby's gender from her many ultrasounds and checkup appointments with the birth mom. And so the doctor is so convinced, so certain that when Harper was born, who's supposed to be a boy, the doctor couldn't see the obvious <laughs> right before her eyes and uh, that Harper was a healthy girl. There's a sense in which all of us are like that doctor. Uh, not in the birthing room necessarily, but we're all like her about God. Whether we grew up in the church or religious home or none of the above, whether we've picked up our ideas mostly from um, family or from friends or from the internet, places like Reddit, whatever the case, we see, often see God how we expect him to be and not how he actually is. We're often remaking God in our very human image. And that's perhaps why passages like 2 Samuel chapter 6 are so hard for us. There's this shock and then anger at Uzzah's death in verse 7 that parallels David's surprise and then resentment. Simply put, we're all uh, put out that God works differently than we think or imagine he does. We can assume that God doesn't care about what we care about, but really it's actually mostly the reverse. We often don't care about what God cares about. And this is why passages like 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 are actually so very valuable. They offer some, a not so subtle correction for us about who God is and how to relate to him. And simply put, our passage this morning tells us God is bigger and he is better than we think he is. And therefore, we've got to approach him differently. We need to approach him with wonder and with gladness. So our passage describes God and how to worship him in the form of a story. And this story has three central events that sort of form our outline and also at the same time purify our imaginations about who God is and how he actually works. So we're gonna look at this outline together. First, verses one through two, we see the deep centrality of God for our lives. Number two, second, verses three through 11, we see the big holiness of God for our wonder. And three, in verses 12 through 15, we see the good blessings of God for our gladness. So we're gonna look at centrality of God, the holiness of God, and then the blessings of God. But let's begin with the first point in verses one through two and the centrality of God for our lives. So for the first five chapters of 2 Samuel, this book, David has been making peace in his kingdom, right? He's been, he's been putting down civil wars. He's been fighting off foreign enemies. And as I hinted at in, his, in my introduction, chapter six, verses one and two, show us David's first act in his new peace and prosperity. And David orders 30,000 troops to gather at one house in a very small town in his kingdom. And we've got to ask the question, why? Why is he doing that? And the answer is because there is a four foot by two foot by two foot wooden box 
in that small town that he just has to have. And he wants to bring this box, albeit covered with gold, back to his newly conquered city. But this should make us pause, right? I mean, imagine that you've just spent decades in the wilderness and the stress and the heat and the exhaustion. Think about your life, what it's felt like year after year after year after year, what it would feel like to be in the most stressful seasons of your life for that long. A season as a parent, a season as at work, a season as a student, maybe even right now. Now imagine that spend, you spend decades doing that and during those decades, you spend every waking hour doing this stressful work with hundreds of disgruntled and distressed outlaws. Now imagine you come out from that and you finally get what feels like this paid retirement ahead of you, right? Royal PJs, endless golf, manis and petties, friends with, fu- friends with fun and exciting plans, or maybe you don't feel that. It's just another day at the all-you-can-eat-and-drink buffet and resort, the penthouse palace at Jerusalem. What in the world would make you go to the trouble of gathering up your soldiers, 30,000 of them, musicians, carts, and oxen for a small wooden trunk? But for David and this, for the scriptures, this box wasn't just storage. The Ark of the Lord was the place of the very presence of God. The only place on the planet where the Lord has promised to show up regularly, to dwell. Worshippers could enter the tent where this box was to meet with God because the box, was, box, the ark, was actually God's cosmic footrest. Imagine God sitting up high in the heavens and his giant long legs dangling down between the heavens and the earth and his feet coming to rest on this box. And you get the biblical picture. But what about this box is what made it so special, so worthy even to be God's ottoman? What is it that the ark contained, in other words? And it contained the stone tablets that were crafted at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. In other words, it contained God's words. It also contained a budding staff of God's priesthood, representing God's forgiveness of us, and a jar of bread that God daily gave into the wilderness called manna, or God's provision as food and drink for us. And so the ark served as a visible, physical place, something like like a pin on a GPS map, or maybe even a street address for where God lived, and it contained proof of God's love and power, his directions for us and his rescue of us. And this is why David's very first act as king at peace was to get the ark, right? He wanted God. He needed God, not just in the stressful wilderness, but also on the successful throne. I like the way that commentator Mark Boda puts it. He summarizes the intention behind David's actions nicely. At the core of David's value system is clearly the worship of God. And this begs a really challenging question for us. Is the worship of God a priority in our lives? Is the worship of God a priority in our lives? If someone followed you or me around for a while, right? 
and intimately observe the daily and weekly details of our lives. Would that person, say even your own child, would he or she conclude that the worship of God is at the center of what we care about? Let me put it another way. How do we schedule our days or weeks or months or years? Is our first priority, let alone a priority, to find time and ways to worship God? Are we arranging our lives to regularly go where the Lord God has promised to show up regularly? Are we putting ourselves in frequent contact with reminders of God's wisdom, reminders of God's forgiveness, reminders of God's daily caretaking, among other Christians in worship? Here's the point. Whether you're a Christian or you're not, whether, no matter where you stand spiritually, whether you feel like you're in the wilderness of stress right now, or you feel like you're in peace and prosperity zone, the purpose of each and every one of us is to worship God. That's why we're on this planet. And we know this by experience, don't we? Our hearts are made to worship. And that's why we so often get taken by someone or something. We go head over heels into something or someone because we're made to worship. And so unless we put the story first of Jesus dying for our self-centeredness and rising again, unless we put that forgiveness first, and we need that forgiveness, by the way, after those, those questions I just asked, I need that forgiveness after those questions I just asked, okay? But unless we kind of put that Jesus first daily and weekly, some treat in life, some demanding person will quickly take first priority and it will start to own and run our lives. So I'm gonna, let's rebuild our perspective together. So the foundation of who we are needs to be who God is. The foundation is worship. And then comes the windows of our activities and the doors for people to enter into our lives. Okay, you're getting my house image here so far, okay? Otherwise, over time, the windows and the doors, the kind of activities and the people will collapse in on us, smothering us with breathless busyness and internalized, unrealized, unreasonable expectations. And maybe that's how you feel today. But good worship intentions aren't actually enough. How and who exactly we are worshiping matters also. This is the substance of the sermon's second point, right? The big holiness of God in verses three through 11 and how this glorious character trait or attribute restores to us a sense of wonder. Verses three through four, the worship that began with brand new carts, right? Twanging harps, clashing, clattering cymbals, ends with God's anger, Uzzah's death, and David pouting for three months straight. And verses seven through 11. But why? Why is God so angry? And really, why did Uzzah have to die? Before we can investigate these questions on a technical level, uh, we need to actually ask where these questions even come from. We need to doubt our doubts for a minute here, right? We need to think about why are we so immediately shocked and disgusted with God in this passage? Why is the anger of the Lord in verse seven so hard for us culturally, but also personally? 
And I think our frustration primarily lies, and I mean we intentionally, primarily, this frustration primarily lies in a fundamental misunderstanding of what love is and what love isn't. So we're gonna look at what love is and what love isn't for just a minute. First of all, love is actually often righteously angry. Love can be righteously angry. Becky Pipper challenges us to think about love this way. Think of how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions like drugs or relationships like those that are abusive. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So the Bible challenges our view of love because it challenges our view of sin. We have a low view of love because we have a low view of sin. And Becky Pippert helpfully defines sin as unwise actions and unhealthy relationships with God and with others and with ourselves. And so biblically in our daily lives, sin isn't just some mere impoliteness like bad breath. It is soul ravaging cancer. And because this is the way it is, Sin often requires God's love to intervene in a severe kind of surgery. We can't just throw breath mints at sin and hope it freshens up or goes away. Second, true love is not always a permissive love. So true love is not always permissive. And what do I mean permissive? We think that true love means giving permission, giving someone absolute freedom. And so we release our house pet into the wild and we say, what you love, you must set free. And within a week, Fluffy or Whiskers is starving to death because they don't know how to fend for themselves or their coyote food. Every parent of young children knows love is not always or even usually that kind of hands-off, do-what-you-want love. If you let your three-year-old do whatever he or she wants, is that the best kind of love? If you've parented a toddler, if you are parenting a toddler, if you've seen someone parent a toddler, you will know that if you let Billy or Susie do whatever they want, they will be dead within an hour. It's true. Is love just letting them go play in traffic? Is love just letting them take up, swing, take up and swing aluminum baseball bats at each other just for the fun of it? Or is true love so concerned for their welfare that it sometimes intervenes on their fun and freedom? Now imagine God is who he says he is in the Bible. He's infinitely greater, greater as the heavens are from the earth in his wisdom and his knowledge and his power. Infinitely greater than I am to a three-year-old. And suddenly, Uzzah's death becomes a little bit easier to accept, though it's still very difficult. God takes Uzzah's life to rescue his life and the life of 30,000 other men's souls. 
God must rescue these people from treating God like a common sack of potatoes. Our, he has to rescue us from our familiarity breeding God's contempt. According to the, God's own words in the book of Numbers chapter four, his ark was to be worshiped in a particular way. The new shiny ox cart, though nice, is a foreign Philistine idea. And the book of Numbers says, actually God's ark must not be touched and it must be carried on rods on the shoulders of only certain people from a certain tribe, the Levites. Look, at the end of the day, the Bible outside of us needs to guide the thoughts inside of us, especially when it comes to worshiping God. God isn't a white, long-haired, blue-eyed, my buddy Jesus. God isn't a pocket-sized deity that I can pick up and use and then put away and put on silence in my pocket, like an iPhone. God is not like your grandpa. He, you know, kind, but so easily tired, quick to hand out a Werther's hard candy when times are troubling and sometimes a bit grouchy. That's not God. Jesus is the Lord of everything and everyone in the universe. That's biblical Christianity. And please note that the same New Testament that calls Jesus a friend of sinners also calls God a consuming fire. And so contrary to popular belief, if we read the whole Bible carefully, we find the God of the Old Testament is one and the same as the God of the New Testament. And really, Uzzah's death in verse 7 acts like a danger sign that we sadly all need. It's a reminder for us to beware of God. Beware that God is outside of our control. He doesn't need our help to study him. We need his help to study us. Beware that God tells us what we need most, who he is, how to seek his will, how to meet with him in worship. God gives us all this primarily through his public Bible, not primarily through our private feelings and private thoughts or personal preferences. I love the way that G.K. Chesterton puts this. He says, a man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun or a private moon. A man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun and moon. That is, if Christianity just works for me, if it's just my private opinion, then it doesn't work, and it's likely not Christianity. And these objective, true outside of us warnings break through our Christian and cultural cliches, don't they? They restore to us a sense of wonder at what we're here gathered about, who God is, and why Jesus would even think to condescend, even Imagine to come down from such great heights, to bow the heavens and to come and to make us, what? Holy like him. To love us so finely, so freely, and so forever. On the cross and in the resurrection. And really, the rumor of this big and holy love is what pulls David out of his three-month stint of avoiding God. It's the love, the goodness. Verse 12 tells us that David, tells us and David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And this report of sort of miracle grow plants and animals of the way that Obed-Edom's face and life shines and shimmers 
with the presence of God, this changed David and it changed his heart. He wanted that. And so all of a sudden, God's big holiness did not seem just intended to destroy people or maybe some sort of like keep away sign like an electric fence. Rather, God's goodness matched his holiness. God desires to give us life, whole grains, filled to overflowing life to David and to all those who seek after God just like he overabundantly blessed Obed-Edom. And so we see in David's rejoicing, his dancing and his leaping and his shouting in verses 13 through 15, we see there the third and final point this morning, God's good blessing that overwhelms us into gladness. And along with the dancing and the leaping and the shouting, I want you to notice the sacrifices. Verse 13, Verse 13 tells us that for every six steps the ark carriers took, King David and his priestly linens made a blood sacrifice. Just imagine every six steps on a journey. Some commenters can actually not believe that, the amount of blood and animal lives that would have taken. But many of these same commentators struggle to believe that Jesus' blood and life took away the threat of death forever for those who believe. So I've got to ask this question. Do we realize that if God is as big and holy as this passage says he is, we need Jesus' life and blood, not just every six steps, but every single step. Do we realize that God's best blessings, the thing that David craved most of all, was not a bumper crop of wheat or baby cows, but the peace and the rest under God's smile his good pleasure. And we get this smile, we get this peace and we get this rest, not from a decorative wooden box. That's just the sign. The substance, the reality is Jesus. Jesus who speaks God's words to us. Jesus who grants God's forgiveness for us. Jesus who daily feeds us and gives us what we need. And so how do we worship this big and good God? We worship, we worship him with both wonder and gladness, reverence and rejoicing, trembling and dancing. Very practically, this looks like seeking out ways to see again how holy and how big God is and how God is actually with me, with us, Oh, how he loves us by Jesus' blood and Jesus' life when we're on the throne of our successes or we're stressing it out in the midst of what feels like a wilderness. Both places. Well, I'd like to end with a scene from C.S. Lewis's uh, series, Chronicles of Narnia, and it's not the scene that you probably think. In the book of Prince Caspian, uh, C.S. Lewis describes the children's reaction to seeing Aslan a lion who represents Jesus in the book series. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Hush, said the four, for now Aslan had stopped and turned and stood facing them, looking so majestic that they felt as glad as anyone who can, can who feels afraid and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. They felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. 
what a picture that is of our loving and good God, a bigger and better God. Worship truly begins in that tension, in that paradoxical place, right? Fear and gladness both. Jesus in all his glory is untouchable. And yet at the same time, Jesus is the one who sets our feet and our hearts dancing. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. Thank you for the reminder, the caution, the celebration that they are. And I just pray that it would change our lives. Lord, would you, would you span the gap? Would you weave through the traffic that goes between our head and our hearts? And would you spread this message in the depths of our soul? Lord, would you remind us of who you are and how you can work? And forgive us for the ways that we've made you pocket-sized. And I pray that you, Lord, would be in the midst of our lives, our thoughts and our imaginations, and that you'd storm them so they can never be the same. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.